All right, please uh, stand with me as we read God's word this morning. Our uh, passage is from Galatians chapter 3, and it's verses 15 to 25. It says, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is God's word. You may be seated. We're going to pray quickly. Dear God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for Christ. God, we pray for Pastor Kyle as he speaks this morning. You'd make his words clear and help us to understand and be changed. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Wasn't that a great testimony from Brother Hosea? Gosh, we could just go home right... And he's tall. Look at this. Fix this thing now. You know why this is happening? We had, we had one of the wireless ones. You remember this? Like, like four years ago? And it just never worked right for us. There's always some noise that would just shut off. So we're like, okay, I guess it's 1985 at Refuge Church. <laughs> so we'll figure it out one of these days and get... Yeah, now it's too close to me. We'll get, we'll get modern one of these days. I am so excited to be in the book of Galatians for you because the book of Galatians is about freedom. It's about freedom in Christ. Um, I, met, I mentioned in, when I was praying, we're all addicted to something. Before Christ, we, we have this need to prove ourselves, to be full, to be whole. Why would, a, why would anyone put a gun in their mouth and end their life? Um, just empty, right? Nothing's working. Not, we can't figure ourselves out until we find the grace of God through Christ. Amen? And that's what Galatians is about. It's about freedom. It's about the freedom that God gives us because we're completely forgiven and loved. Amen? I want to say, too, um, I am super excited. My hope, don't quote me on this, but my hope is that, um, you know how we used to do potlucks every, once a month? My hope is that in July, the last Sunday of July, this is what I'm praying about. You pray with me, okay? because I don't really know what to expect sometimes with the state and all these rules and things going on. But my prayer is that the last Sunday of July, we're going to do a back-to-church Sunday, back-to-in-person church again, 
right? Come back to church. Don't watch us online anymore. Come back. And it's not just people. Sermons are great. You know, that's all you, we've been, we've been trying to be safe and it's been awesome. But what we need, the body of Christ is meant to see each other, to be around each other, to know each other's names. You can't do that. It's so impersonal just doing it online. We need relationships, community. So my hope is at the end of July that we're going to do a back to church Sunday, right? You know how they used to do that in September? Uh, well, we're doing it in July. And, um, and we're going to have a potluck, right? And uh, we're going to eat, um, and we're going to eat Marge's delicious hot dog sauce, Coney Island sauce. And we're going to have a blast. I, I re- pray with me that we're, we're able to do that. I shouldn't say that, like, out loud. Now, if we're not going to be able to do it, everyone's going to be mad at me. But, like, let's pray together because that's my hope to do that. I, f- I feel like we can pull off a safe way to do it, right? Um, and um, so, so let's, let's be praying for that. And let's talk about freedom now. I, um, we, we had some wonderful things that we got to enjoy today. So my sermon's going to be a little bit shorter. And you guys are saying, yes and amen. We're going to get out of here early. Well, maybe not that. I just said that the sermon will be a little bit shorter. We're in Galatians chapter 3. We've been hammering home for the past maybe couple of months now a singular principle which is core to the Christian faith, and that is simply this. Our performance does not and cannot make us right with God. And you think, like, oh, that's kind of discouraging. Um, How do we, how how can, if I can't make myself right with God, am I doomed? You're not doomed. Because you can be made right with God by grace through faith. It says in Galatians, that in in our text, that the works of the law cannot redeem us from the curse of sin, which is separation from God, ultimately death. Christ's performance alone, grace, satisfies God's justice towards sin and places our curse on him. We talked about that last week. The curse we deserve went to Jesus, we get his righteousness, and we're reconciled with God. The life we've been after and all of God, God's created stuff that we thought we would be fulfilled in is actually fulfilled in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But we're separate from God because of sin, and the way that that's dealt with is the, is the salvation that God gives us in Jesus. But how does the law fit into all this then? What do we do with the law? How does God's law fit? Or we could call them God's rules, if the word law is maybe not understanding what I mean. God's rules. Questions about sexual purity. We all know that Christianity comes with a certain kind of moral um, code, right? There are certain things that the Bible instructs us to do and not do. What's the point of doing all that if they can't save us? If we're suggesting today that we're saved by grace through faith and not those things, then why, why even pay attention to them? Questions about sexual purity, how we treat our spouse, immigrants or minorities, our relationship with our government. What does any of it even matter if we're saved by grace through faith? What is the purpose of God's law if it can't save us? That's what we're turning our eyes to now because Paul in Galatians is anticipating this question and he answers it for us. He kind of expects, well, this is probably what's going to be asked. What's the purpose of the law then? Paul begins by explaining that the law does not void the promise of grace, and he illustrates this with the concept of a human contract, okay? He begins to unpack the purpose of the law by explaining a human contract, what a human contract is. In verse 15, it says, Let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. He's saying God made a contract with us to save us by grace through faith, and that can't be voided. 
If you were to, to write a will, for example, a legal will, not something on a napkin, right? If you were to write a legal will, it would be virtually impossible to void that will. Isn't that true? So, for example, let's say that you had a, a whole bunch of money and you left all of that money to one of your kids because they were very poor. But the other kid who was very rich, so you gave them things that were more sentimental, right? Let's say the day after you died, their situations completely reverse. The rich one becomes poor, the poor, ones become, the poor one becomes rich. It wouldn't matter. You see that all of, your, all of what, how it was written in your will would be delivered as it was written. It wouldn't matter that their situations, the rich one is poor now, they're still going to get the items of sentimental value. The poor one is rich, and now he's richer. You see? You, it is virtually impossible to change a will, to change, to change a contract once it's made legal. And that is Paul's argument in this passage, that even on a human level, contracts are legally binding. Paul is saying that God made a promise to Abraham, you know, Father Abraham, 3,000 years ago, God made a promise. He knew that we were sin sinners, separate from him, devoid of life. So he shows up to Abraham and he says, I'm going to save you and your nations and the Gentiles by grace through faith. And that's in Genesis chapters 12, 15, and 17, if you want to read more about it. He says, not by works, but by faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't work his righteousness. He believed God for it. It was given to him as a gift, a promise. This was a contract, a legally binding contract that God made with the human race, right? So you might argue, well, that promise that God made to Abraham, this is what the text says, was made 400 years before God, before God gave the law, the rules, to Moses. So is God changing his mind? Is he saying, okay, I'm going to save you by grace here, but 400 years go by. I don't really like that system anymore, so I'm going to give them a new one. Paul says, no, that's not what happened. Verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, meaning one person who is Christ. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. You see what he's saying? He is saying that the fulfillment to the promise made to Abraham is proved that it continued and is, and is still active because of Christ. Christ is the seed. Christ is the, the proof perfect that God is still gracious right? And Christ, by the way, came after the law, didn't he? After the law was given to Moses. The coming of Jesus proves that the law didn't somehow void the promise that God previously made to save humanity by his free grace. Because if Jesus, it, because if that were the case, Jesus wouldn't have come, Right? If the law was a way to make ourselves right with God based on our works, then God must have changed his mind about how we're saved because he promised Abraham that he would save us by grace. That's the only way in God we know that God doesn't change his mind. He suddenly would have had to decide that we didn't need a savior, but we could somehow work out our own salvation based on our performance and not on his promise. And Jesus would never have to be sent, but Jesus was sent. 
So that proves, Paul is saying that proves that the law wasn't given to save us. It was given for another reason. So Paul is arguing that the law's purpose is not to do away with the promise of the free grace that God gives to us in it. Now this is vital to distinguish a promise gift versus a merit-based reward. Let Let me give you an example of what I mean. If I promised to give you, this is your lucky day, if I promise to give each and every one of you $1 million as a free gift, what would you need to do to receive that gift? You would just need to simply show up. You would need, in other words, you would need to believe me. Say, come and see me after church. I'll, I'll give you a million dollars as a free gift. But that's, a, that's better than a refuge church hat, isn't it? You know, so you would buy a lot of refuge church hats with that. So all you got to do is believe me. Or you could just laugh in my face, you know, go to your car after church and never come forward for it, right? You see, all you need at that point, if it's a gift, all you need is faith. But if it's a merit-based system, I would promise to reward you with a million dollars, perhaps if you worked for me and sold ten times that amount of money in some product, now you're an employee. Now it comes with strings attached. Now you know I get to work hard. I get to earn it. You see? You see the difference between a free gift, that which is the promise to save through Abraham, and a merit-based system? You see, what Scripture is saying is that the promise made to Abraham means that our, our reconciliation with God and the forgiveness of sin is not based on merit, but it is based on a promise, a gift. And that means you don't have to work for it. You just need to believe the promise maker. You need to believe him and receive it. So Paul argues that the promise made to Abraham isn't void because of the existence of God's rules or God's law that he gave to Moses. And now he argues that the promise is a free gift. Of, uh, let's, let's unpack that a little bit more. He says in verse 17, the law does not set aside the covenant or that contract previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. Let me explain to you what this means. Sometimes we read the scriptures and we trip over things. And we're like, what, what's really going on here? What does this mean? It's talking about our, our etern- inheritance equals eternal life. If we read that in there. It means that we, we have our life again. We were separate from God, and we were trying to get our life back and all of the things that he created. We were separate from God because we sinned against him. But the inheritance, our eternal life, reconciles, with God, reconciles us with God so that we're right with him forget, again. Our sins are forgiven. We're being made right with him and so on. Paul is saying that this depends not on keeping the law, but on a covenant promised by God, the promise of God, which we talked about. We distinguished merit-based versus a gift or a promise. So the promise is sealed or guaranteed because it was made under a covenant. Now let me explain to that. I think I've explained this in the past, but let me reiterate this. What is this referring to? In Genesis chapter 15, it's referring to Genesis chapter 15, where God makes this promise to save us by a free gift. He promises Abraham this in Genesis chapter 15. So Abraham asks, this sounds really awesome, God, but how do I know? How do I know that this really is a free gift? 
that salvation isn't merit-based and it's something that you're going to give to us by faith. So he says, okay, this is what I'm going to have you do, do, Abraham. I want you to go get me a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon and cut it in half. That's weird. That isn't the Old Testament anymore, right? So he says, I'm gonna, <laughs> I want you to go fetch a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon and go cut, in, go cut it in half and lay the pieces out side by side in a line and make like an aisle just like this one. Right? So Abraham knows right away. It doesn't say this in the text, but we're going to presume that Abraham knows right away what God is getting at. Because what God is doing in this instance is he's setting up a contract. Right? He's, the way that they did contracts in the ancient Near East was very similar to this. This wasn't unique to Israel. So if you were making a deal with a person and you both needed to, quote unquote, sign on the dotted line, this is how they did it back then. This is like two people showing up with a lawyer and a notary or whatever else you need and signing on the dotted line. It's the way people that made contract. So you guys, maybe some of you bought a house or something like this. You set a date to meet the seller and the lawyer. You're the buyer. You make a date to meet the seller and the lawyer and you're closing, right? At the bottom of that bill of sale, there's a line for the buyer's signature and the seller's signature. You want to know why? Because you're both liable. You both need to keep up your end of the deal. The house is as is. I'm selling it for this, for this price. And you're saying, yes, I'm buying it for this house as is for this price. So if you show up and all the doors and windows are missing, they didn't live up to the end, their end of the deal, you see? You're both liable. That's what those signatures, both of your signatures mean. You both are responsible to live up to your end of the deal. In the ancient Near East, both parties would walk through these pieces as if to say, if either of us don't live up to our end of the deal, may we be cut in two just like these pieces are cut in two. You get it? It's like both of their signatures. So Abraham likely is expecting, okay, I'm going to walk through these pieces with God. We're going to make a deal. But that's not how it happens. Because the Bible says that Abraham is put into a deep sleep. And only God, as a blazing fire, passes through the pieces. You know what this means? He signs both, and, Abraham's, and Abraham is sleeping. In other words, Abram is not liable even if he breaks the terms of the contract. If he breaks it, then God will be cut in two, not him. You see, if he breaks it, then someone else will deal with the consequence of his sin. Because Abraham's signature isn't on the contract, it's God's. Oh, friends, don't miss this, because what this means is that salvation, we, we, we broke the terms of the covenant, but God takes the consequence for us. Isn't that beautiful? The idea here is that Abraham, I, not you, am responsible to save you and to save all those who come to me by grace through faith. I will do it. Even if you break the covenant, I'll be torn in two. So it was Jesus, we just read last week, became the curse for us. Covenant breakers. He was torn in two so that we would live forever with God and our sins would be 
forever forgiven, separated as far as the east is from the west. Isn't that beautiful? The promise to save is a free gift, not based on our merit to live up to the standards of God's holiness. So Paul says the inheritance, our salvation, depends on the free grace promise of God, not on law keeping. The law of Moses then has a different purpose. What is it? Answer the question, dude. You said this would be shorter than normal, right? Okay, let's get into it. You might be noticing that I'm referencing the law of Moses a lot. We're, not, we're saved by God's grace, not by the law of Moses. We might call those God's rules. And you might also wonder, what the heck are you talking about? What rules that God gave to who? You see, this might, I've never read the Bible, and if you're a Christian, you might be a little bit more familiar with what these rules are. So you say, like, if I don't know the, the law of Moses, am I off the hook? No, and here's why. This is bad news. But it gets, it gets good, so hold on. The Bible's answer is that we have the law of God, the rules of God, built into us. So that even if we have never read or even have heard of the law of Moses, we still know instinctually by nature what those are. It says in Romans chapter 2 this, When Gentiles, those Gentiles are not Jewish people, so not law of Moses people, right? They don't even know who Moses is. When Gentiles who don't have the law of Moses do by nature things required by the law. How is that possible? We'll get, it. we'll get to that. It says they are a law for themselves. Even though they don't have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts their consciences bear witness, and their thoughts accuse them and at other times defend them. What's going on here? Here's what Paul is saying. The Bible is saying here that by nature, we know that the, we know the law and even do the law. They are a law to themselves, it said. So even though we have never read, thou shalt not bear false witness, our conscience reveals to us the law of truth. We know instinctually that a lifestyle of lying and murdering is wrong without having ever read the Ten Commandments. You see, what he's saying here is that the reason people have a common morality is because the law of God is written on our hearts. We have a conscience. We know it. And scripture says it accuses us because we all still fall short of it. The conclusion of Romans chapter 1 through 3 is that all humanity is condemned by the law, whether, whether they know the law through the written word of God or whether it's written on their conscience. See? All still stand condemned. So why, why do we have a conscience? Why these rules? If these rules, if I know them and I try to keep them and they can't save us, why the heck doesn't God just make us dumb? Right? unaware of his rule and law. Why are these rules here? God's rules, God's law, they're not just about keeping rules. They describe the nature and character of God. So in other words, we don't lie because God is truth. That's why it says you shall not lie, because God is truth. The Bible says he made us in his image so that if we are liars, we not only offend him, but we offend ourselves. You see? 
It doesn't go well with us. So we are aware of who, on a very basic and simple level, who God is and likewise how we're to live. So God's rules describe his nature and character as applied to us because we're made in his image. God is truth. His law teaches that image bearers wouldn't be liars, right? To break God's law is to violate his nature and character. So we return to this question. Why did God give the law through Moses? And, or why do we have it written on our conscience? Why? If we can't be saved by keeping it, doesn't it simply just condemn us? Verse 19 gives us the answer. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgression. Let me explain to you what he means. The law was not given to teach us how to be saved, but that we needed to be saved. It is a, it is a spotlight onto the reality of the condition of our heart, that we are, that we are broken and sinners, and rebellious towards the God who made us, all of us. Our conscience should verify that to us. It should affirm that principle, that we are not as we should be. Right? So God gives us our conscience. He affirms it in his written word in the law of Moses to reveal to us that we need to be saved and that we have no power to save ourselves. Because as hard as we try, we cannot always follow even the promptings of our own heart. I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do, Paul says in Romans 7. Who can save me from this body of sin and death? Thanks be to Christ through Jesus our Lord. Right? The law wasn't given to teach us how to be saved, but that we needed to be saved. It doesn't tell us about salvation. It tells us about sin. And to prove to us that we, can, we cannot be the solution. The law was never intended to impart life. It couldn't do this. Verse 21 of our text, For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. In other words, if the law could give life, someone would have pulled it off by now. And no one can claim that. We've all broken it. So the purpose of the law, whether it's written on our conscience or revealed to us through scripture, is not to impart life. Rather, scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. The law in scripture declares that we are prisoners of sin. And, you, and friends, you shouldn't even have to read the Bible to know that. That something, like, I can't even do the things that I know I should, simple things. The law locks us up, it says. It locks us up. It reminds us that no matter how hard we try, our hearts still covet, and they still are jealous, and they still deceive, and they still lie, right? They still cheat. We still do this, as hard as we try, as good as we desire to be, that law condemns us, and we're helpless to cure ourselves. The law shows us that we don't just fall short of God's nature. You see, friends, remember, this is why this is so terrible. God created us to be true, not false. God created us to, created us to be satisfied with him and not jealous of your neighbor's possessions. 
He created us to be like him, his beauty, his light, his brightness, his glory. But we say, we don't want to be like you. We want to do it our way and do our thing. And once, and by the way, when I realize I got a problem and something's wrong with me, I'm going to be my own Jesus. I'm going to fix it. I don't need his help. Right? I'm going to be good. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to pray. I'm going to whatever, you know, add whatever it is to your list. But the law locks us up. It reminds us that no matter how hard we try, we still covet, we still deceive, and so on, so that we're helpless to cure ourselves. The law shows us that we don't just fall short of God's nature and will, so that we simply need to just try harder and be better. The law shows us we can't try hard enough. We must be rescued. We need the strength of another. We need grace. The law then shows us that we are not righteous, and keeping it cannot make us righteous. So then the law, God's rules, are our guardian, or what scripture calls a tutor. Before verse 23, coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed, so that the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Verse 23, the law is a guard. Verse 24, it is a tutor, or like a childhood teacher. And this is what one author, John Stott, explains about this verse. Would you follow along with me? He says, after God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? Because the law exposed sin. It condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off of man's respectability and expose what he really is underneath. That's, it's light, right? The law must be allowed to do its God-given duty today. Friends, what he means by this is you will never know Jesus as Savior until you, never, until you see yourself as sinner. You won't need a savior because you can save yourself. You can do it yourself. You see, but what the law does, it says, no, you can't. You thought you, thought you, were, you, thought you were okay, but we are all locked up under our, the weight of our own sin. The law, he says, must be allowed to do its God-given duty today. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law was first revealed to himself. It is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth, the light of the grace of Christ for us. So John writes in John chapter 1, in Christ was life, and that life was light. You see... <laughs> I know this the older I get, right? I don't want a lot of light on me. Right? The older I get, the more dense I have, right? Like the more imperfections, the more flabby. You know, I'm, I'm trying to wear dark clothes a lot in dim rooms, right? I don't want light on me, right? Like I don't want to, I don't want to expose this mess to you. You see, that's what, that's what religion does. Religion hides your mess, under a guise 
of respectability. What the law does is it opens the lid. It says, no, here some spotlights. Here's, here's the real deal. And you say, well, that's, that's humiliating. No, it's not, because the reality is if you never realized that, you would never be saved. You have to know your need for salvation if you're ever going to be saved. You see? you got to know it. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Once light, we cannot unsee once we see what the law reveals in us. We know we're fallen. We know we're desperate. And we know that there's nothing that we can do about it. The law reveals the darkness of sin. And Jesus reveals the light of the grace of God in Christ. Amen? So come to him, friends. So are God's rules only gloomy? No. The psalmist calls them honey. But how? How is it, if they only expose, like, by true condition, how is this, how is the, God, how is the law honey? Well, because in Christ, the law becomes not that which saves us, but that which we can worship God by. Do you see the difference? God's rules now are, are an expression, an extension of our new saved self. They are not rules by which to prove myself to him anymore. Does that make sense to you? So now what I'm saying is that in Christ, the law is freedom. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian's rule. So we're not enslaved to the law. We're free in the law. The Christian doesn't disregard God's rules, but they are for the first time free to actually do it for love's sake, not for the sake of threat or for the sake of reward, not for the sake of proving ourselves. So we don't forget about the law. We said earlier that the law simply is descriptive of the nature of God and our own nature. So we don't just become liars, but we're free to be true. You see, our truthfulness no longer is a boasting point. It rather is an extension of our new nature in Christ. We are made right with God as a free gift so that we can follow his rules for him and not for ourselves. Do you understand what I mean there? We are free to, we are free to be like him for him and not for us. Because it's no longer a system of self-saving. If we're following his rules to save us, we're doing it for us. You see? Now, by grace through faith, we want to be like him out of worship for him. You see? Because we love him. Because of what he's done for us. It's no longer a system of self-saving but worship. The law, the law now adorns us rather than proves us. It is simply a demonstration of our new nature as God's children and image bearers. Isn't that great news? Oh, friends, let me close here. If you want to know the joy of being accepted by God, you must first pass through the law and see the seriousness of sin. You cannot be saved unless you know why you need to be saved. We must all listen to the law's searching and painful analysis of our lives and hearts. And might I quote this wonderful author, 
Unless we know how helpless and profoundly sinful we are, the message of salvation will not be exhilarating and liberating. Unless we know how big our debt is, we cannot have any idea of how great Christ's payment was for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are, your goodness, your truthfulness, your righteousness. Oh God, but all of that truth about you exposes the darkness in us and, re and, and makes us recognize that we need to be rescued. God, would you reconcile, for anyone here that doesn't know you, would you be reconciled to God through Christ? Would you come to him for your life? Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, the one who paid for it on the cross for you. Cry out to God in a prayer like this, God, save me, I'm a sinner, forgive me. I can't save myself. I've sinned against heaven and earth, against you, against myself, against my neighbor. And I've trusted so many other things in life to make me right. But only Christ can do that. He died for me. He is my Lord and my Savior. Friend, if your heart is believing this and turning to this, you are new. You're a new person. Go and enjoy the freedom of life. God, thank you for the rest of us. Help us to remember your, the richness of your grace so that we can adorn our lives with good works in freedom and not in law. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.